in a series called Meat and Potatoes. And what we're trying to do is to take uh, meat and potatoes terminology and apply it to complicated theological concepts, ideas, and terms. So what we've talked about so far, um, other than the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, we've talked about sanctification. Uh, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. The process by which he doesn't leave you that way, we refer to as sanctification. We talked last week. We talked about uh, justification, and uh, justification is different than pardon or forgiveness. Uh, pardon is for all the sins prior to when you were justified. Justification is the is the is an act of God that happens outside of you. It comes to you, on you, and for you. But it, it, it's a declaration of God that says, from this point forward, I will never treat you again as if you are someone who has sinned. That's pretty cool. So if you're not justified, you cannot go to heaven. And if you are justified, you cannot go to hell. Now, justification and sanctification are married. Justification is the, the declaration of God that I will treat you as if you have never sinned. And sanctification is the way by which he makes you more and more the person that God wants you to be. Today is the largest theological concept in all of Christianity. It's the concept of the idea of an, uh, an attempt to explain the atonement. So what atonement means basically is because we've wronged, those wrongs have to be paid for or atoned for. How, how, how does that go about? How does it get applied to us? And I just want to let you, to let you know going into this that there are dozens of theories of what the atonement, what Jesus accomplished with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the father. I'll just name a few. You don't have to write these down. There's what's called the ransom theory of the atonement. And that is basically, this is way back. This is one of the earliest ones from a guy named Irenaeus. Uh, the ransom theory is that the devil had kidnapped humanity. And um, in order for humanity to be freed from the devil, a ransom had to be paid to the devil. And that was the life and person of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think that God owes the devil anything. Uh, that's one of those theories that's, that's kind of moved along. There's another one called the recapitulation theory. That's the one that Paul is going to talk about in Romans 5. That is that Adam was a representative of all of humanity, actually a man, but because of one man, one man messed up and made a mess of all of humanity since then, uh, we inherited original sin because of that. Jesus, the second Adam, came to set right everything that Adam had made wrong and all the people between Adam to Jesus. He covers all of that and then sets things right in the future. There's the satisfaction theory, and that is that um, God has a justice debt that we owe him, so Jesus paid it on our behalf, paid God, restored all of the all that was wrong. There's the sub penal substitution theory. That's a weird one. Um, that basically means that, that, that the punishment, punishment for our sin had to be, uh, had to be put out, but we couldn't, we couldn't pay for, we couldn't pay the penalty. So God did it for us. Those are all interrelated. Then there's the one that, that is really good, but it's not enough. It's the moral exemplar theory. 
The moral exemplar theory, I'll take you back to Easter, if you were here, use an illustration of, if I were walking on the boardwalk in Grand Rapids along the uh, Grand River, and I'm waxing, I'm walking with Lynn, my wife, and I'm, I'm waxing eloquent about how much, how great my love is for her. And it's January, it's cold, there's ice in the water, and she trips and falls in the water. And because I love her so much, I, and she's a much better swimmer than I am, so this would not happen, but let's just say, so I come out the hero here, um, that she fell in and she's drowning and is going to die. So I jump in and somehow work it out that she gets out back on the boardwalk and I drown in the process. I died in her place and saved her as a result. I'm going to be written up in the paper as a hero. No greater love does one man have for a woman than to lay his life down for his wife. But here's the moral exemplar theory. If I'm walking along with my wife and I'm waxing eloquent about how much I love her and then say, let me show you how much I love you. And I jump in the river and drown. That's just dumb. Now, many people will argue that Jesus came to show us how to live, but they cannot account for his death. Did Jesus come to show us how to live, to be a moral example? Absolutely. Is that all of the atonement? It is not. So let me put it to you this way, and then we'll pray and we'll read some scripture. And I hope to do at least a smidgen of a job of communicating to you how big of a deal this is. If we have not been atoned, if we've not been bought back, reconciled, all that kind of stuff, we're doomed. How do we know all that happened? We can't. There's a guy named uh, M. Griffin in a, in a book called Making Friends. I have no idea what the book's about. I just have this, this, this illustration. He, he talks about London, the city of London. And if you go to London, there are really three types of maps. This is prior to GPS and all that kind of stuff. There's a map to get around or through London, the throughways, what we, we would call interstates, right? So it, how do you get through or around London? And do you choose, you know, based on the traffic, you know, do you go around like a bypass or something like that? We've all, we've all seen those kind of things. Lynn and I are going to Denver this week to drop a car off for my son, and we will be following the, the overview map, the big, the big throughway map. But then there's the map of how do you get around in the city? Um, that's, you know, each road and the intersections here. And what, you know, this is, this is located at the corner of this and this. And, you know, big, big, long English names for roads and lots of shires. Um, but it helps you navigate within the city. And then there's a map under the city, what they call the tube, we would call the subway. Um, and it helps you get around the city, but under the city. Now, those are all maps. They can all help you get to where you're going. But if you put them all on top of each other, no one can find their way anywhere. It's kind of like the old Rand McNally atlases where they used to print out Google Maps, for those of you who are young. Um, that was kind of funny. Only to me. Uh, I'm weird. There's the, you know, there's the big interstate. Okay, here's how you get from Michigan to Colorado. And then there's the, you used to get the state-to-state map. How do you get from here to there? How do, you, how do you navigate through the state? And then there's individual city maps, like the city of Grand Rapids, the city of Zealand, the city of Holland. Um, how do you get to where you want? But if, if, if you had all, one map all in one, it's just crazy confusing. So it's good to look at it one layer at a time. That's what all of these theories of the atonement represent, different layers. It accomplishes, the atonement accomplishes all of these things. We're going to concentrate primarily on one of them today because that's what Paul concentrates on. Let's pray together. Lord, this is way beyond me. This is way beyond every theologian I've read, but it is not beyond you. 
So I ask simply this, Lord, that you communicate to everyone in this room clearly what you want them, us, me, to understand about the work you accomplished in the atonement. When you said it is finished, when you cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, what happened? Help me communicate to us what you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Romans 5. We're going to read the whole chapter. I'll only stop once or twice. I'm just going to tell you in advance, if you try to follow this, please try. It'll be up on the screen. It is, it's not confusing so much as it is, Paul seems to be very repetitive, but every little repetition has a nuance in it. I want you to see that nothing in here does Paul say you, you did and you, you got because of what you did. It's all we have received. It is all come. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a response. To, it's, it's the grace that God has given. It is all what God has done, not what we have done. It reads like this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice also in our suffering, something we don't talk about very often. We rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Weird sentence, I know. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to be made right to, all, to be made right in every way to God, to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then he goes to what we call the recapitulation theory. Jesus is the second Adam. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. That's when God gave the law. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now, this is where Paul is calling Jesus, or Adam, a type of Christ. Not a type of Christ, like if I say a bait casting reel is a type of fishing reel. Um, but academically speaking, Adam is the anti-Jesus, so to speak. Because of one man, lots of terrible things happen. Jesus, because of one man, lots of glorious things happen. So academically, that's if you ever hear a theologian talk about Abram is a type of Christ, Moses is a type of Christ. Not saying that it's like a little Christ, just saying like Christ, this, we had a picture of who Jesus was going to be in part because of Moses, because of Abram, because of Adam even. So, uh, but the gift is not like the trespass. 
For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the, of, one ma- of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through, the one, through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and, and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I know, it's a lot. Two more paragraphs. Consequently, just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is thick. There's a lot there. So I'm going to do my best in very short order to summarize what Paul is saying. God speaks. When God speaks, things happen. When there was chaos, God spoke order, and there was order. When there was darkness, God spoke light, and there was light. And every day of creation, God spoke something, and it happened. And then he, to let let the plants come to be. Let the fish come to be. Let the birds of the air. The, 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 and, and they happen. So when God speaks, creation responds. And he did that for five days. On the sixth day, he made dirt man. Adam, that's what his earth man. I made him out of dust. And he breathed life into him. But he gave him something that none of the other parts of creation had. His image. And that means that there's reason and passion the ability to love, stewardship of all that belongs to God, and spirit and soul. And the only time in all of creation that God said it wasn't good was with Adam. It's not good for man to be alone. So he laid him down, he took something from him and made Eve. And they connected in such a way that how they spoke of it was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They were one, they, they completed each other. So here's this two people that are passionately intertwined and God created it that way and then God is in relationship with them and every day in the cool of the day, God would come and talk to them, walking, talking, knowing and loving them. And then as time went on, one man messed it up for everybody. See, God said, you can do whatever you want in this paradise that I've created for you. And people go, well, what, if there's a guy, if there's a good God, why is there evil in the world? Well, the scripture answers that question in the third chapter. He wanted humanity to only know good, but he doesn't want automatons. So he said, here's what I want. You do anything you want. All this is yours, as is mine. Just steward it. Treat it like it belongs to me and everything's going to go fine. But just don't, just don't, just don't do this. See, that this thing that they weren't supposed to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they decided, all right, 
Not what you want for me, what I want for me. Evil entered the world. Not because God put it there, but because we picked it. And because God can't be in communion with anything that isn't sinful, and he took them and he moved them out of paradise because if they're not going to behave like all is supposed to be, then they're going to be in another place. And what entered when they, when they did that, what entered was everything that's wrong with the world today. Disease. There was none before this. Weeds. There were none before this. Predation. Animals. Lions used to lie down with lambs, but now lions eat lambs. Rape. Murder. We see in the first couple of chapters of Scripture how bad it gets, how quick it gets awful. See, because of one man's sin, death reigns. Murder shows up. Rape shows up. Racism shows up. All of that, treating people like their property, all that stuff comes into be. Not because God desired it, but because we desired it. And he, it got so bad that he said that people, people, it, it's so bad. This is just six chapters in. It's so bad that the only thing that's happening in the world is evil. So he wiped it out and he picked another type, Noah. And he said, Noah, you and your family, you're going to restock this whole planet. And then they took off again. Tower of Babel got, got so, it just, oh, we just time and 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 time again, we mess it up. And then God picked one man. His name was Abram and he made a covenant with him. I'm not going to get into it because I've, I've done that here before, but basically what he says is I'm going to bless everyone that comes after you. And if I don't do what I said, you can spill my blood and dance in it. And Abram, if any of your people aren't perfectly righteous, if they don't keep every command that I have for them, if, 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 you, if any of your descendants for all of history ever mess it up, you can spill my blood and dance in it. And then a couple of chapters later, God had given Abram a son. Abram was named Abraham at this point. His name was Isaac. And God saw that Abraham, again, just like humanity does, starts loving something more than they love God. They, he, he started loving his son Isaac, the promise rather the promiser, uh, the, 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 the gift rather than the giver. He started loving him more than he loved God. And God said, I want you to take him and take him to this place I'm going to tell you about and kill him for me. Nope, not going to do it. Abram did. Don't know why. Not going to get into all that. We're trying to summarize. And he took him to a mountain. And as he climbed up the mountain, he laid his son down, tied him up, and took a knife. And right before he slaughtered his son, in the name of God, God said, stop. Now that I know that you fear God and that you did not withhold your son from me, your only son whom you love, I will not require it of you. And he gave a scapegoat, something to die instead of Isaac. On that very mountain, God was showing us that he had a plan for us. On that very mountain, a couple of thousand years later, God, his son, did not, he did not spare his son. He did not withhold his son from us. And on that very rock where Abraham laid down Isaac, Jesus was crucified dead are crucified and killed so that you and I are atoned for. So that you and I can be pardoned, justified, and begin the process of sanctification. On that very spot, God had been telling us thousands of years before, here's what I'm going to do. He's been telling us since the, the whole idea of Adam, one man, all mess up, that there's going to be one man to make everything right. This is glorious and stupefying for humanity. That God would do this. Now, I'm going to remind you of another illustration. I'm not going to tell the whole thing, but just picture you that you're driving down the road and you're going to Grand Rapids and you get off on, onto 196. And this is from a guy named Michael Whitmer. It's a great illustration. And you're driving along. Uh, your wife's in the car if you're a dude, vice versa. Someone else in the car. And, and, and all of a sudden, the lights go on behind you and you hear this little whoop, whoop. Pull over. My wife would look at me and go, what'd you do? Or if I'm going along and I get off and all of a sudden a cop comes up in front of me, one comes alongside, one comes behind and makes me move over. What did you do? 
Or if, same thing, except there's a roadblock to the, to the, to the, uh, the rest area and, uh, and there's a helicopter flying backwards with a guy with a, with a little dot on my chest through the windshield. What did you do? Now, the reason to tell you that again is to remind you that, that sometimes the, how far someone, the response tells you the severity of the situation that you're in. And to think that God would choose to wait patiently for 4,000 plus years before he rectified something we made wrong. And though how far he's willing to go, he didn't just wipe us out and start over. He didn't wipe us out and start another Garden of Eden without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He decided that his love for us was so great that he's not going to just jump in the water and die. He's going to save us in the process. And so he, he, think about how far God went. Would you do that for you? See, there's, there's an idea of the atonement that theologians talk about. It's that you're in a city and it's under seed. So why, what, okay, the atonement 2,000 years ago, what Jesus did, what does it mean for us today? Here's what it means for us today. If a city is under siege, that means the enemy army is all around and the supplies are running out. We, we live in an age where it looks like, man, Everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes. There's lots of evil. There's lots of horrible things. And people are being mistreated all over the place. And then, then we've got this disease. All that stuff. All that stuff's happening. So these people are, are, are in this city, and they're under siege. And they're not out of supplies yet, but they're running low. And there's a sickness that's starting to go around within the city. And they're starting just about to panic. And one night, a spy makes his way through the enemy lines and shows up and says, I got great news. The enemy, not just this part of it, the surrounding city, the enemy has been defeated. The general went down. The king is captured. The papers have been signed. I just want you to know you're saved. They just don't know it yet. But when word gets to them, you're good. That's what Jesus did for you in the atonement. He killed the enemy. He got rid of the army that's going to vanquish. He, he made it so that now you have hope. It's already done. He's already won. It's just not yet. Do we see it all, all the time? There's another way of looking at the atonement. And this is from a guy, it's from a guy named uh, Robert Coleman in a, in a, in a work called uh, Written in Blood tells the story of a little eight-year-old boy whose sister is six and she's sick. And it happens to be that she has the same disease that he had recovered from two years prior. And we all know how this works now with the whole COVID thing, the whole antibodies. If people, someone that's recovered has these certain kind of antibodies in their blood, if they take some of that out and they, and they reproduce it and they put it in someone else, it will help them fight off the disease. It's the same situation this little girl is in, but they both had a very rare blood type. And so the, this little girl is frail and she's dying. And the doctor comes to the eight-year-old boy and says, we, we, need to take some of your, we need to take your blood and give it to your sister. Are you willing to do that? And he paused and his chin quivered. And after about 15 seconds, he said, yeah, for my sister. And they laid him down. They put the IV in and he started seeing the blood run down that tube into his sister's arm. And he looked at the nurse and he said, when, when do I die? See, to him, if they're taking my blood, I'm going to die. He willingly offered himself to save his sister. Now, we know that it wasn't going to kill him. They were going to drain all of his blood. But nevertheless, that idea of his great love for his sister, he was willing to die so she wouldn't. That, in part, is what Jesus did for you. But there's more. So I'm going to kind of end this time 
with an idea, again, to see the, the, the severity, how big the response is from God should tell us just how desperate we are. See, there is no hope if you're not justified. And you're not justified if you're not atoned for. Martin Luther, he was the guy 500 years ago, started the Reformation. And there are some things that Martin Luther said. He didn't like the book of James at all. I disagree with him wholeheartedly on that. But there's some things, some, some concepts that he has that, that blow my mind. And I hope that it will in turn blow yours. See, we talk, and you've heard from me over the last eight and a half years, on occasion, we'll talk about this theological concept of imputed righteousness. Now, if you don't remember that term, it's the one that is defined by, remember that? that okay. God takes the perfection of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the, 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 the pure, the driven snowness of Christ, and he, he grafts it onto us. So we become Christ's righteousness. It's not because we have righteousness or we've been perfect. It's because he has been. So he puts it on us, in us, around us, through us, under us, over us, in front of us, behind us. We become his righteousness. What we don't talk about is imputed sin. If the condition of Jesus' righteousness is placed on us, something gets placed on him. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for you. Martin Luther puts it this way, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. See, there's an exchange that takes place. At the moment of atonement, when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says in the gospel according to John, it is finished and then bowed his head. He did it intentionally on purpose at that moment. God, there's an exchange that takes place. Everything you have ever done and everything you will ever do that does not bring glory to the father, Jesus became it. We love to say, oh yeah, he died on the cross to save me from my sin. It's more than that. He died on the cross and became your sin. In a way, he became me. He became you. He became Adam. He became the rapist. He became whatever it might be. He became it. The lengths to which God will go to restore his beloved children to himself, to reconcile us, to justify us, to sanctify us, to pardon us, to make holy what is unholy. He had to become unholy. The holy one became unholy. The sinless one became sin. The exchange that takes place, because not for God's glory, but for his love of me and you. I hope to God That blows you away. And if it doesn't, then I have not done my job, but it is way beyond me. So for a moment today, just ruminate. Chew on it. Think through it. That when you look up at Jesus on the cross, he didn't just do it to forgive you. Everything that you have done. He didn't just do it for everything you're gonna do. 
He didn't just do it so that the Holy Spirit could dwell within you and move forward in your life so that you become more the man or woman that God made you to be. He did it to exchange himself for you. He died in your stead, and when he did it, he became your sin. Martin Luther says, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what was yours. You became what you were not so that I could become what I was not. In a nutshell, that's atonement. And it includes all the other theological things that we have been talking about and that we will be talking about. And I hope that you have a smidgen more of an understanding of all that it is, all the layers today than you did when you walked in here. But don't let it be here. Let it be true here. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are almighty. You can breathe life into someone. You can create something from nothing. When you speak, creation responds. And what are we that you were mindful of us? We only know what you've told us, that you deeply love us, that you passionately care for us, and that you were willing to go quite literally to the ends of the universe to make us right with you. Lord, please give us a heart of gratitude because of that. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit that now lives within us for the glory of God our Father. Amen.